All right, well, let's pray, and then, uh, and then we'll get into questions. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for your blessings. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be upon us to help us to learn and to grow. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. This is actually um, the, uh, the first thing on my agenda, if I can get everything to work here. Yeah. How the devotion goes? Any questions? So... That's always that that that's always the first thing that I want to get yeah. to because yeah. you know you've been going through this all week, and um, you know you're smart people, so I'm not like you know oh they're gonna have a hard time or whatever. But you know questions do come up. Yeah, so I can't believe how many times I've read this, and every time I do, there's something. Yeah. <laughs> I heard in your last um, in the sound clip that you sent me, like towards the end, you guys were talking about. How you know the Catholic faith uh, doing the confessions, and I actually was did that growing up. Sure. So I just thought that was interesting, you know, hearing you talk about that, and that just kind of brought back some memories of us having to do that when we were kids. <laughs> We'd have to go in, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just us and the and the pastor and separated by the wall, and it's very, you know, yeah. everything that you see is very. I don't know. Every we did that every week and had to have you know three or four things that we had to confess. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and that's that's the thing that's to me is bad about that. I actually like private confession absolution. I think it can be very helpful to somebody. Um, I think that uh, um, it gives you the opportunity to speak forgiveness to something very specific in that person's life. And I think that that can be really, really healthy. Absolutely. But I also think that there can be a game if it's required. I agree. Yeah. You know, oh, what am I going to, you know. Yeah, what am I going to tell them? Like last minute, like, oh man, I can't, you know, absolutely. It feels very forced. Yeah. And I have to do it. Yeah. So I have to find, you know, two or three things. Then it's not a matter of, this is something that's bothering me and I, and I I need to hear forgiveness for this. It's, I've got to come up with my couple of things and I've got this thing that really is bothering me, but I don't necessarily want to talk about that. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, and then you can kind of hide some of those things away, yeah. because it just becomes this requirement that's pushed right. on you. Whereas, if this thing is festering in your life, and you're like, I really, just, I just really need to talk to somebody about, yeah, this. I don't have to make up all right. this other. Then, then there's this this freedom to come yeah. in. I agree. And, you know, you and, charge him with something then. In other words, I've heard okay, say twelve hail, hail marys. And, they do that uh, absolutely. They, but I mean, you do. You, no. No, I... no, you know, I mean, it kind of depends upon the, the situation. Um, if the person, you know, the, like what we talked about last time, you know, the guy who, you know, he got really, really drunk and he wasn't sure, you know, and it's so many years later. Right. So many years later, I'm like, there's nothing to do here other than speak forgiveness. If that had been the night before... Then we would have talked about, okay, this is what we need to do now because repentance requires that we take responsibility for our actions. And if you did something, we need to find out about that and you need to be willing to face those consequences. And I've guided people through stuff similar to that uh, in, in the past. Um, you know, so, you know, do I, you know, charge them to, you know, in, in a sense, you know, I mean... God's grace and forgiveness is a completely and totally free gift. I never want to give the impression that you earn anything. Now, having received that free gift, boy, that changes us and it changes our relationships with you know, what we've done. 
you know, and, um, and, and so sometimes that means you need to, you know, step up to this, you know, you know, if I had a person who came in, you know, and they, they confess, you know, boy, I'm really struggling with alcohol. We're going to have a conversation about, okay, what are you going to do to make sure that you're, you know, not abusing this substance, you know, and depending upon where they are kind of on that spectrum, you know, it might be that, you know, all right, I'm just going to not, I'm not going to drink anything for a month. I'm going to get it all out of my house, you know, and I'm going to kind of just do a reset and then come back to it and, you know, see how that goes. Okay. I think that's a legitimate plan depending upon how in or out of control you are. It might be, yeah, nice idea. I think probably you need to get involved with Alcoholics Anonymous and start attending meetings. You know, so... Yeah. yeah. So there does there is there there can be a counseling aspect of it. But I once had a, a, a person come and she was so broken about something that happened in her life. I mean, it, it, she's just as she's starting to tell me about it, I mean she's just collapsing in on herself. I don't need her to tell her to do anything. I just need to tell her that Jesus loves her, that he died for her, her sins are forgiven, go in peace. And then the other thing that I will often do, um, depending upon what people, you know, want or what time, you know, um, I'll often do the Lord's Supper with them after that, you know, because we believe that, you know, Jesus actually delivers forgiveness and, and salvation to us. So it's like a reinforcement. I love the passage in the scriptures that says, says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think that that has a neat tie to the Lord's Supper, where that flavor of bread and that taste of wine becomes, in a sense, the savor of salvation. So, next, next. <laughs> He's like, <Wow. laughs> you could go to Luke eleven and just go read the thing and and everything in there. Just about, I uh, question. Okay. Luke 12, the one thing that I, I wanted to ask about was, is worry a sin? Interesting question. Um, I think you can make an argument, yes, in the sense that it is, um, it, you know, it could be construed as a lack of faith. Okay? Um, now, that being said... I think sometimes we have this impression that when we become Christians, that our goal is that we become perfect. And, uh, and I think that there's an impression um, in American Christianity in particular that it, it's kind of like this you know, line, you start here and you want to end up over here. And really it ought to be kind of this, this straight line where you're just getting better and better. And I don't think that that's biblical and nor does it match my experience of life. You know, I think that, you know, you know, five minutes ago you may have been way up, you know, and things are really good and then something happened and you're, you know, in the pits and then sometimes you're somewhere in between. Um, so if I say that worry is a sin, I say that in the whole context of the, our whole relationship with God is rooted in his grace. So, um, so sometimes, yeah, we're going, we're going to sin, and we're going to fall short of the glory of God. 
And it's not that that's okay in the sense that it's permissible and we should just accept that. But in another sense, it's okay in the sense that Jesus is taking care of this because he knows our brokenness. And, you know, and he's done what's necessary because we're going to continue to sin and fall short. That's not a license to sin. We continue to live by confession, you know, and, and, and to try to be more confident to do what's right according to the law. But we're also not going to be so obsessed and fearful, you know, of, of what God's going to do to us because he already did it to Jesus. And we're living, you know, in, in the, the atonement that he's made. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but I'm still not sure whether you're saying it's a sin or not. I mean, I assume it is. If, if I mean, doesn't it depend on what you're worried about? He spends about? a whole well, what half a page on why you shouldn't worry. Sure. And he gives a real good explanation why you shouldn't. Right. And yet, we all do. Of course, we all sin. Yeah. My wife believes it. <laughs> if she doesn't worry, it won't turn out right. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there is worry, and there's giving things their proper amount of thought. You know, <laughs> um, I often liken worry to meditation. So when we read the uh, the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, it, the psalmist talks about meditating on God's word. You know, and meditating on his commands and meditating on, you know, his blessings, meditating on his works and the things that he's done. So you've got you know, this one of God's people, just for simplicity's sake, we'll say a Christian, okay, because they're living in the hope of Christ coming. You know, so, um, so we'll, we'll just kind of stretch that word a little bit, Christian, to include the, uh, the believers of the Old Testament. And... And as he's looking at his life, and I say he because the psalmists were all male, um, uh, they, uh, uh, the, the, this guy is saying, I need to fix my mind on those things that are going to help me in my relationship with, with God, that are going to help me to live with hope and confidence. Why is, it, why is that something that's difficult? Why is that something that's hard? Because our minds are often going to drift into other things that don't give us hope and confidence. And that is pretty much the definition of worry. It's what is your mind lingering on? So I think you, you could say that worry is a form of idolatry. You know, it's, it's, you know, taking what God has completely under control and I'm trying to control it. Uh, I think you could say that it displays a, a lack of faith. Okay, so worry is a sin. Now what? Jesus died to pay for your sins. Go in peace, your sins are forgiven. Okay. You know, so some people, when they think about, oh, I worry, then they kind of become obsessed with, well, I'm worried that I worry because that's a sin. I'm like, time out. Live in the grace. Live in the freedom. Live in the peace. That doesn't mean just go do whatever you want. 
But it does mean, do not be afraid. Because Christ has done what's necessary for you. And what is it in chapter 11 that... Uh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you guys didn't have the same... I did not get all the reading done. Very stressful week. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders yeah. through waterless regions looking for a resting place. Yeah. But not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it swept it and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil, and they enter and live there, and at the and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. So um, this is this is in the context of um, talking about casting out demons, casting out or what we would you know call exorcisms. Okay. So you go back to uh, uh, verse 15, and basically you know, the, the, the religious leaders are, are complaining that he casts out demons by the, the power of the devil, basically. Um, the name Beelzebub literally means the Lord of the Flies. You know, it's, just, it's this really poetic image of, of what the devil's like, just kind of always buzzing, you know, just you know, working on you. And, um, uh, and so he's continuing this conversation um, and, and this is one of those rare spots that he he actually kind of lifts the veil a little bit. And in some ways, it's just not helpful. I'm sorry, Jesus. Um, because, you know, it's like, what do I do with this information? And I think that what we do with this information is we recognize, first of all, um, the demonic is real. That there is a, a spiritual world out there that is, you know, probably beyond, you know, what we often see and experience. Okay? Um, if we search the scriptures, what we understand about that is that these are, are fallen angels. You know, uh, I actually posted a, a meme yesterday. Um <laughs> on Facebook that I saw that I thought was really funny. Um, one person goes, you know, my children are angels. And the reply was, so was Lucifer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this all becomes kind of difficult because this is all conversation that's on the edge. You know, so when you, when you look at what is the Bible about, it's really about the coming of Jesus and how he dies for us, rises for us, what God has done to save us. But we have the, these periphery characters, this demonic part of the story that shows up. That they really don't, you know, this was not written to explain what the demonic is. But it accepts that it exists and that it does some bad stuff, um, that it's harmful uh, that they can seemingly take possession of people and do things in them and through them that are pretty awful. And, um, you know, and so you know, you know, the temptation is then, oh, I need to know more about this. And, and God knows that we have this, um, this draw toward you know, the 
the macabre, you know, the, 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 the horrific. And, you know, and, and I think that that's, notice I said I think, so I'm in opinion now. Uh, I think that's why there's not a lot of that in there, why it's not particularly clear. There's just enough to know that it exists. You don't want to be part of it. And, and you know, bad stuff. And this is a picture of bad stuff. You know, Jesus, you know, basically saying, you know, the demon that's in the person that's possessed them has been driven out and it comes back. Now, I think that we would argue that this is a person who is not living in faith. You know, they've been healed. They're well, but they're not living under the protection that God gives to his people. And so what's the natural thing to have happen then? That it goes back to or worse than where the person was before, spiritually speaking. Okay. Uh, I was looking for a guide for myself. Yeah. Out of that, and I couldn't... I mean, why is it in there other than just for information? I guess that's it. I think that it's in there as a uh, as a warning that one that this is not something that you want to mess with that this is not to be toyed with, um, and then uh, also uh, you've got you've got this other spiritual stream that's going on as as Jesus is confronting these uh, religious leaders that is apart from him, and they think they've got it all figured out. And he's saying that, you know, basically you continue down this, this road and you end up in a worse spiritual condition than you are now. And, you know, and it's not just a little bit worse. It just gets a lot worse. You know, and so when a person comes, uh, if, if a person were to be delivered um, or exercised, you know, you don't just let them be Boy, that person, they need time in the scriptures. They need to be taught how to pray. They, they need, you know, to continue to live in this life of faith. Because really, when it gets down to it, that's our protection. You know, it's Jesus over us and the Holy Spirit within us. So uh, I remember uh, being on a mission trip in Haiti. And, and we were dealing with, like, some spiritual warfare type of stuff. You know, here in the United States... Our experience has been, uh, and I think that this is changing, but it has been that uh, the devil kind of hides. You know, he's the red guy, you know, the guy in the red suit, you know, with the pointy tail. He's kind of a joke. We laugh at him, you know. Um, you know I, I've had people, I've had Christians tell me, we don't, we know that that's not real. They're talking about mental illness here. Like, it might look like that. And I'm not saying that possession is mental illness or that mental illness is possession. I think that, you know, there is such a thing as, you know, mental illness, that there, there, there are things that go wrong in our, our body chemistry and in our minds that are medical, they're physical. Does that mean that there can't be a spiritual component in this? And does that mean that if there's something going wrong in our spirits, you know, this spiritual, you know, possession thing that that can't manifest in something that looks a lot like mental illness 
you know, and so a lot of this has just been kind of like, we know better. No, we don't. You know, I, I, I mean, in Haiti, you know, they very, very regularly through prayer uh, and, you know, worship, the, this exorcism and the confrontation with the demonic is a regular part of their lives. It's not been here. So we read this and it's like, whoa. But if you go someplace like Haiti or, or Africa, they're like, yeah, tell us something we didn't know. You know, um, and, and I think that warning that the spiritual part of life is real and that it, is, it can be bad is necessary. Now, it also says in 1 John that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So sometimes Christians read stuff like this and they get freaked out. They're like, what if this is happening to me? And our response is, no, he who is in you, the Holy Spirit who gives you faith, you know, and we'll get there, but who seals you when you're baptized, you know, he ain't going to share you. He's a Holy Spirit. He's not going to allow unholy spirits you know, to take hold of you. Have I completely danced around it or have I gotten to no, it? No, you answered it completely. <laughs> I, I was looking for a lesson to be learned for me and that's not what that's there for. No, I, yeah, I, I mean, other than keep your keep your eyes open, right. be alert, watch out. He's warning you of the temptation. Yeah, it might look good on the outside. <laughs> you know, it might be tempting to find out more. Yeah, it can spiral out of control. Like you and said. and it does sometimes. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that this is not too far behind where Jesus gives the Lord's prayer. You know, and uh, in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, there's this last line that says, and lead us not into temptation. You know, and I think that there are, it, it might not be the exact same theme that's going on there, but I think it's, I think it's connected. So, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we, when we talk about the Lord's Prayer um, next week. this isn't a question I guess but it may be (laughs) the further down in 11 Mm -hmm. talks about that generation looking for a sign yeah and what was it about that to me I'm thinking why that generation was Christ put on earth what was it about events or sequence of events that brought Jesus then. Mm-hmm. I mean, why then? Yeah. Um, and it seems like maybe, well, I'll just ask that question and before yeah. I go on to anything. <laughs> so in, in Galatians 4, it says, when the time had, had, when the time had fully come, uh, God set forth his son to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Now, that 
phrase, when the time had fully come. You could also translate that, when the time was just right. So what's just right mean? Yeah. And I think that's hard to know from, from the standpoint of the mind of God. Um, there will be people who will look and say, well, here is, here is what's just right. You've got the Roman Empire that has uh, um, really consolidated you know, th- that whole area. North Africa, all the way up through Turkey, uh, and all across southern Europe. There's real political stability, you know, under the, uh, the, uh, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Uh, the Romans built extensive uh, systems for travel, you know, it, it, and before even that happened, you know, Alexander the Great had taken over all of this, and he brought Greek to all of these different areas, and, and all of a sudden you have this common language that unites, you know, all the way from Spain, uh, all the way around across North Africa, as a language of trade. You know, and, and you know, and you could just kind of look at some of these historical events and say, and that's why the time was right. And I say, well, wait a second, time out. Who caused all those things to happen? Who who writes history? God. Yeah, and so these are things that he was doing to prepare for just the right time. Right. But what made that the right time, and why? Not now. I don't know. Well, you have the genealogy part. Yeah. I mean, so many generations from Adam to David and so many from David to Christ. Yep. And it all had to work. Is that just something that was nice? But there isn't anything in the Old Testament that says there will be this many generations from Adam to whomever to whomever to whomever. You know, in Matthew, it splits up very nicely into kind of these uh, three groups of I think it's seven, you know, um, and uh, actually, uh, yeah, it's three groups of seven, except that there isn't a 21st. Yeah, there's some screwing up things. Because the 21st is us. We're the children of God through Jesus. You know, it's like, oh, oh. Uh, Well, you know, so how does that all work out? You know, in terms of the timing, because God decided it was the right time. I don't know. Uh, go back to um, the story of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. The outcry has come against me, and you know, has the outcry against them has come to me. You know, and uh, the the time, you know, is is right to to do something about this. You know, it wasn't that you know yesterday somebody said. God, you know, something's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. You need to look at this. That had been going on for a long time. You know, when, when Abraham came to that area, he literally chose to be distant from that area, from Sodom and Gomorrah, because he, he knew that there's bad stuff happening there. Well, that, by the time he has this conversation with God, it's almost, you know, 20 years after he's moved there. I don't know. You know, I know that God is patient, that God is merciful, and that he has his his own designs in terms of allowing sin to kind of blossom, so to speak, in order to speak his mercy and grace into it. But, yeah, 
I don't know what makes this particular moment in history the right time. But there is some really cool stuff that's going on right then that makes all of this you know, a lot easier to take place. Wasn't something about the culture. I don't think so. It, okay. I mean, it's just okay. Because this generation, you know, demands signs too. Not necessarily the miraculous kind. You know, I, I've had conversations with people who basically say, you know, well, what good is the church? You know, why should the church be tax exempt? You know, it, 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 it's just a social club. You know, it's like, well... No, you know, we do this, that, and the other thing for the community, and we, you know, care for people and so on and so forth, and you know, and they look and they're like, yeah, but you don't do this, that, or the other thing. They want a sign that we're woke enough, or that we're environmentally concerned enough, or, you know, whatever enough it, it is, you know, um, you know, from a more conservative side, it might be that, uh, you know, that you're pro-life enough, you know, and there's always kind of these metrics of, you know, we're looking for some kind of a sign that says you're good enough. You know, at Jesus' time, they were a lot more open to the miraculous than we are today. And that's the kind of signs they were looking for. You know, I would suspect that, you know, if you heard that somebody was doing miracles, you might want to see that too. It's like you brought up in the last clip with, uh, was it Doubting Thomas? Yeah. Doubting Thomas, yeah. yeah. He wanted to see, touch, feel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, they're, I think people still want that sometimes. Yeah. I guess any time that Christ would have come to to earth, hmm. there would have been doubt. Oh, absolutely. If it were now, there certainly would be doubt. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, he says somewhere in here, you know, you know when it's going to rain. You know when it's going to get hot. But you don't know. You don't recognize me. Right. And remember, at that point, he's he's not just kind of talking to the world in general. He's talking to the religious leaders of the Jews, who should be able to read the you know the miracles, who should be able to see what's going on, and to go, oh, it sucks about that in Malachi. Oh, it talks about that, you know, in the books of Moses. Oh, it talks about that in Isaiah, you know, and be like, there's something here. But they set themselves against him because they, in essence, refused to believe. That's why I see kind of like where you're going to his question, whereas... You know, you have the Roman Empire, just a very influential time where, you know, God felt that, uh, you know, Jesus is, this is the time, the right time, because this is where, you know, people are starting to expand, like you're, you're going into different countries and you're getting, you know, established with this, like the empire. I, I'm, it's hard, I can't th- to put it into words, but it was a very influential time for people to believe in someone and for 
to believe in God and for God to show them the way. And, you know, as we're expanding and moving into these different countries, you know, take that word with you as you mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. And it was just a good time, you know, as these things are being built, God's there with it. Yeah. And people can understand that. Yeah. Another interesting example of, you know, kind of this just the right time thing is the Reformation. You know, Martin Luther comes along, he recognizes these problems that are going on in the church. Well, it just happens that at that same time, there's this really cool invention called the printing press. Before that, everything was handwritten and it was copied hand, you know, by hand to send out. All of a sudden, these things can be mass produced. Now, I say mass produced, you know, they can make like 20 of them in a day, <laughs> right. you know, but that's, you know, that's, that's, that's huge <laughs> yeah, right. compared to, you know, hey, it takes us four weeks to copy that. You know, you know, so there have been, you know, just these, these moments where it's like, okay, it's the right time. And this is, you know, this tool that's provided, you know, and then you, you, you have the question of the chicken and the egg, you know, did it expand because of the Roman roads or did the Roman roads come along because God said it's time for this to expand? band and i tend to look at it you know that way other questions the worry thing yeah one other thing (laughs) the um it seems to me what he's saying there is um you know if God worries about the birds and, and the grass and so forth, why wouldn't he worry about you? Right. And yet bad things happen to good people. So mm-hmm. it seems to me he's saying this life is not as important as you think it is. Ha Now you're into something. Yeah. I do think he's saying that. Um, and, and Worry more about the next one. Not necessarily more, um, but keep this life in its proper context in light of what is yet to come. This is actually what I'm going to preach about tomorrow. Um, I'll make sure. Yeah, I would hope so. (laughs) Um, But so Jesus says, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many mansions or many rooms or however you want to translate that. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to where I am. You know, he says, I'm making all things new. There's going to be new heavens and new earth. There's not going to be sin and you know, uh, the, the corruption that's in this world is going to be gone. You're going to live forever in, you know, perfect glorified bodies. You know, this is, you know, the message in the scriptures in terms of the resurrection. You know, no more pain, sorrow, death, weeping. You know, I can't even imagine that. Um, and uh, and, and he, if that's our future, and, and, and that's you know, guaranteed for us you know, by Jesus, what do I have to worry about now? And so, you know, when it comes to like sharing our faith, how often do we, sh- you know, kind of shy away from, you know, talking about, you know, Jesus? Because 
weirdo, Jesus freak, you know, you know, oh, look at that hypocrite, you know, you know. But I know, you know, what's about to happen. Or as the hymn would say, I know that my Redeemer lives. You know, and so my confidence then doesn't become, you know, based in what I do, but on what Jesus has done. And that leaves us free to do. To not, you know, obsess and to worry, but to actually say, boy, there are a lot of bad things in this world. And I can do something to alleviate this much of it, you know. And somebody else might be able to do this much of it, you know. And together, we might even be able to do even more. And that's a good thing. But it's not going to get me into heaven. And nor is, you know, if I get pushed back, nor is it, you know, going to keep me out of heaven. So I'm just going to live, you know, the way God calls me to live with confidence. And I'm not going to worry because he's going to take care of it. It's not a call to irresponsibility. You know, I've, I've heard that one many times. Um, yeah, you know, particularly like with the environment, you know, um, God is, God is going to clean all of this up. He's going to take care of it. Does that mean that I should just go throw my water bottle wherever I want? No. In fact, I've kind of come to the conclusion that maybe we shouldn't be using water bottles, period. Pretty wasteful and, you know, a lot of pollution comes from that. Now, did I say you can't use water bottles? No, I didn't say that. That's a matter of, I think, freedom. You know, I, I can't condemn you for doing that. That'd be wrong. But at the same time, for me, I'm like, I don't think I want to do that anymore. Doesn't mean you won't see me with a water bottle in my hand, though, if I'm thirsty. You know, depending upon the situation. You know, because God will take care of it. Don't be irresponsible, you know, but respond to his love and his mercy by living according to his will. Anything else? All right. Good deal. So we need to talk a bit about the Apostles' Creed. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so, uh, some reminders. First of all, why is this not working? <laughs> there we go. The main theme as we go through the, uh, the catechism is faith. I think this is really important to keep in focus because, you know, we're doing a study. And it's like, okay, well, now I'm studying this, so I have to have a certain amount of knowledge to be good enough or whatever. Knowledge is good. It can be a great blessing that God gives us. But what this is talking about is not knowledge. It's about faith. It's about trusting who God is and what he says about himself and uh, and what he says about us and what he says about what he has done for us. Okay? So... Um, 
I, I think that's really important because, you know, if you haven't looked at, at the way that he talks about, you know, explaining the, the Apostles' Creed, you know, he explains the, the, cat, the uh, commandments. It's just little teeny tiny, you know, boom, yeah. you know. Yeah. The Apostles' Creed is like, you know, and, oh, this is kind of heady. It can be kind of heady. But it's not about it's not about the knowledge. It, it, it's about the faith and the trust, and, and that has to stay in focus. So last time we we talked about experiencing God as creature, um, we went through all of that. Um, one thing I do want to really emphasize, though, Matthew twenty three thirty seven through forty. It's the last point on there. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord. Um, so when you look at the way that the commandments are laid out. Um, there's a, a section at the beginning that talks about us and our relationship with God. You know, that would be idolatry, how we use his name, and worship. Okay? But Jesus goes on and he says, in the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor. And so starting with honor your father and your mother, all the way through don't covet, that's an exposition on how do you love your neighbor. So how do you love God? I don't have any other gods. I respect and honor his name and use it rightly. And I come and I hear his word and I receive the gifts and the blessings that he gives in the word. Well, how do I love my neighbor? I start by respecting those people who are in authority over me, you know, starting with mom and dad, <laughs> you know, and then you know, I respect life and, and where life comes from. So you don't murder, don't commit adultery. You know, I respect that people need stuff to live. So I'm not going to steal. Uh, I respect that, you know, a person's reputation matters. You know, and so I'm not going to speak ill of people. I'm not going to bear false witness against them. And boy, this is such a big deal that I'm not even going to want other people's stuff. You know, because that can become a starting point to get me into trouble with the other. You know, and so, you know, how do you love the Lord? How do you love your neighbor? I think that the Ten Commandments be, become a, kind of an exposition on that. So the Apostles' Creed. Um, the first thing that you need to know, uh, if you didn't already, is that the Apostles' Creed, uh, it, it's not in the Bible. Okay. There are what we call three ecumenical creeds. Ecumenical means uh, the whole church accepts them. Okay. Um, now there there's some variation in terms of you know some of them don't like one line you know in the way that we use it or or whatever. But you know, boy, it's the whole thing. Um, more recently in history, you know, within the last. 50 to 100 years, particularly in America, there have been people who have said, you know, creeds are not good. Um, I really disagree with that. They're like, all I need is my Bible. <laughs> but as I've already said in this class, the Bible's a pretty big book. <laughs> and there are bits in here that are more important to know than others. You know, I think I used the example of Nimrod as a mighty hunter, right? That is biblical truth. It doesn't necessarily save your soul, 
knowing that Jesus died for you, you know, that does. That's pretty important. Yes. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's not to minimize the other. It's just that there, sometimes there are things on a continuum of importance that are more important than others. And so these creeds then become an attempt to summarize what are those most important points. Oh, you look like you're getting ready to ask them. No. Okay. Um, so the Apostles' Creed is the one that you have in the Catechism. This is the shortest of them all. And uh, uh, it was really written as almost like a curriculum for people preparing for baptism. So when you go back to um, how this creed came into existence, it comes very early on. We have pieces of it that go back into the, the, you know, the, the second century. So not that, you know, right away, but shortly thereafter, after you start to get a, a certain amount of, of scripture that's, that's out there that people accept, they start summarizing. You know, well, if, if you're new to the faith, what, what do you need to know? You know, and, and, and so they wrote that um, to do that. Now, there were some controversies about who's Jesus. Is Jesus equal to God the Father in his authority? And, uh, you know, in, in, yeah, there, was a, there was a heresy that basically said that Jesus was not eternal the same way that the Father is eternal. Um, and, uh, and so if you look at the Nicene Creed, those are the two that we use in, in church with some regularity. The Nicene Creed's a little bit longer, and part of that longer is this section in the uh, um, part about Jesus that says, he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Basically saying, yeah, he, he's, he's on the same level. Okay? God not made, is that in there? Mm-hmm, yeah. You know, born of the substance of the Father. You know, it just, all oh, this... You know, he's the real deal, is what what that's saying, you know. And so they they looked at the Apostles' Creed and, the, and, the, and they were saying it says it just fine, but there are people out there who are getting it mixed up. So we're gonna, you know, try to put some teeth into this, so, you know, make it a little bit stronger. So the Apostles' Creed came first. Yeah, at least in its uh, in its original forms. Okay, um, I don't think that it's first in the sense of the first one to be finished because it continued to be edited and tweaked. Okay. Um, the Nicene Creed comes from the Council of Nicaea uh, in uh, 325. And that one, you know, they literally had a, a council that came together and they hammered this out and, you know, and said, this is what we want to believe. The Apostles' Creed is more organic. Okay. Now, there is a legend about the Apostles' Creed that says that... Uh, the way that it came about was that the apostles were all sitting together and Matthew says, I believe in God the Father. And John says, maker of heaven and earth. You know, and it just kind of, you know, <laughs> fell off of their lips. Yeah. Be pretty impressive. That would be pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. But that ain't what happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, because we, we found copies. You know, this was a, this was a literate age and, and they wrote things down and there's all kinds of of copies of bits and pieces, you know, and, and we can compare them across the years. I think that um, if memory serves right, the Apostles' Creed really becomes solidified 
in the 400s in, in like a really final form. Because I, I think you have all these different areas that are working with the same ideas and they do it a little bit differently in France and then they do it a little bit differently in Turkey, you know, and then it kind of all, it's all pretty much the same, but little tweaks and, you know, and then it kind of shakes itself out and becomes solidified. The Athanasian Creed um, is uh, it's different than the other two. It's really long. Um, you know, so the Apostles' Creed, you can write, you can memorize that pretty easily. Mm-hmm. You know, as you get used to it, you will, you know, if, if you go to church regularly, there will be a time where you will be saying it and you won't even be thinking about what you're saying because, you know, it's, it's just there. You know, sometimes when I go visit uh, shut-ins, you know, I'll start speaking the, the Apostles' Creed and they're there. They've got it. You know, it's, it's just ingrained. And I think that that's possible with the Nicene Creed, too. The Athanasian Creed is like two pages long. I never heard of it before. Um, I will, uh, I'll make sure that I bring copies of these. I should have had that this week. I apologize. Um, but uh, that one is a little bit, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, it, it really is like this detailed exploration of what is the relationship between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is, uh, it, it just really goes round and round because these are difficult things to talk about. And, and it does it beautifully. You know, so about the first half is all about who is God, you know, in relationship within himself. And then the second half is, you know, well, the only way we know him is through Jesus. Well, who's he? <laughs> you know, and it's, it's beautiful, it's, but it's hard. And how did it come to be? It came through another council. Um, there, there were heresies at the time that basically were denying the Trinity. And... Um, so there's there's a legend that it was written by a uh, a church leader by the name of Athanasius. That's how oh. it gets its name. Um, but that's not really what happened. There there were there's a council that was meeting, and you know they put it together, and you know they ratified it at the council. But this this is a fair piece later. You're you're in the six seven eight hundreds, I think. Um, so. It's really important to remember that the creeds are not the Bible. They're not inspired, you know, fallen from heaven. They've been edited and, you know, but there's a certain amount of wisdom in a document that can stick around for almost 2,000 years and still be considered good. Um, They summarize the Bible's teaching. That's what they're there for. And the word creed, it comes from the Latin word credo. Um, Notice that I say it's Latin because these were written, uh, at least the apostles and the Athanasian creeds were written in Latin. Uh, I think you could make an argument that the Nicene Creed was probably written in Greek and then translated into Latin. Um, But uh, um, that first word in, in the Apostles' Creed in the original is credo, I believe, okay? 
Um, and that's and that's where that word creed comes from, credo. Um, and the thrust is both individual and corporate. You know, I believe this. You know, this is my faith. But notice that often we say it in unison. You know, and so there's this moment where we stand together, unified in a, a, a confession. I really think that this is part of what's really important with worship and um, with, with good songs for worship. Um, I really like, you know, the, the old hymns. Uh, I say songs, though, because I don't want to, you know, look down on, like, what we do with the praise team. I think that that's really valuable, too, the more modern uh, music. Uh, but it gives us an opportunity to speak together or sing together about the faith that we hold individually. You know, um, so nobody can believe for you, but it's really darn important for us to believe together. We, we need that fellowship. And I think that these become a good opportunity to explore that together. So who is God? Um, we are, we're, we're trying to talk about God the way that, uh, that he talks about himself. Um, so in the past, I, I really didn't have to talk about this, but I think it's probably important to talk about it now. Um, pronouns. You know, people will complain, you know, oh, it's the patriarchy that, you know, you know God is he. No. This is, this is just how he talks about himself. Now, does that mean that God is an old white dude with a big white beard, kind of like Santa Claus? No. No, those are kind of representations that we've come up with on our own to understand, you know, wrap our minds around him, so to speak. Um, the Bible says that God is spirit. He's not a man. Uh, you know, he is significantly different, but we tend to understand things by analogy. Now, I think it's probably worth mentioning that, uh, um, you know, Jesus uses this image of his godly ministry that he has longed like a hen to gather his chick, her chicks. There's a motherly image that's in here too because you know male and female created in God's image you know these best aspects of what it means to be male or mean, means to be female uh, they they embody something about God um, but uh, you know when he throughout the scriptures um, always uses the, the masculine pronouns for himself and that's why we continue to um, the scriptures are really clear there's only one one God. Everything else is an imitation or a forgery. Um, but the scriptures are also really clear that there are three persons. And this gets really confusing. Um, it names those three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, uh, um, and we've come up with this word to describe it. Triune or Trinity. Three in one out of the Latin, try for three, un for one. And just kind of slap it together to say, this is what we see. I don't know how this works. Uh, I just believe what God tells me about himself. All right? Um, so, uh, when you read the Bible, you will never, ever, ever see the word triune in there, anywhere. 
interestingly too, when you read Luther's part of the catechism, it ain't in there. It is in the explanation part. That's all in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, it, it's, it's, it's not in the Bible. It's, it's not in here. Now, I think it's, it's taught by the Bible. The idea is there. We just put a name on it. Okay? And that name is triune or trinity. So, I've said that this is all about faith. And what the, the, the creed does is it, because we recognize these three persons who are this one God, um, we re- have, have put together these creeds that speak about each of them. So we talk about faith in our, our creator, faith in our Lord and Savior, and faith in the one who brings us faith. That's the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what forms the, the outline uh, of, the, uh, of the creed. What, what um, we, we would call each of those mini paragraphs an, an article. You know, so you have one creed, three articles. You know, and they're focused on the, the different persons of the one God. Um, and I'd love to be able to give you an analogy that just you know, makes this all make sense. But all the analogies fall short. They break down at some point. So um, historically, St. Patrick used the, uh, the, the shamrock to describe uh, the Trinity. You know, you have those, those three buds on one leaf. You know, like that makes it all clear. You know, <laughs> um, it doesn't. Uh, the, another one that, that uh, I've seen, you know, you cut, up an, you cut an apple in half. You have three parts. You've got the core, the meat, and, and then the skin. Okay. But I could probably break it down further than that. Right. You know, uh, and you know, so I think that sometimes these things are a little bit helpful, but they're always, there's, I think that's always going to be a certain amount of confusion when we deal with these things intellectually. It's really coming at this from a standpoint of, I'm going to trust what God says about himself. And as he talks about himself, I hear father stuff. I hear son stuff. I hear spirit stuff. I hear stuff where they're interacting with each other. So it's not like there's just God and now he looks like Jesus and now he looks like the spirit. What does this all mean? You know, and when people tell me this is really simple to understand, I get really nervous. <laughs> I'm like, this isn't simple to understand. I'm just trusting what God said and, you know, and I'm going to leave it there. All right? Which does not mean you shouldn't ask me questions. I'm, I'm more than glad to answer or deflect. Um, so the first article of the creed deals with faith in our creator. Um, as Luther explains these, um, there is a pattern, and if you would open your catechism uh, to pages 16 and 17, so it, in the first article there, he says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
You know, he's just quoting the, the creed. Then he asks, what does this mean? Notice he starts out, I believe that God. And then it ends with, this is most certainly true at the end of the, the, the explanation. You know, these are, these are statements of faith and trust. Take a look at the second article. Um, he, he goes through the creed. What does this mean? I believe that, Jesus Christ. And down at the end, this is most certainly true. You know, he, he, these are things that he trusts. Same thing with the third article. I believe that. I cannot, by my own reason or strength. You know, and then at the end, this is most certainly true. Um, it's just this really, you know, it, it's, it's really all about faith and trust. Now, back to the first article in specific. I believe that God the Father, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, what kind of image is this expressing? I, I think it's an image of a God who is almighty, who desires for us to exist. I think that it's an image of uh, one who creates and provides and all of this. And so as Luther explores that with the meaning part, he gets into those types of things. I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body, soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house, home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. Um, now, it's an image of creator and provider. Back and forth, back and forth. And... Uh, um, and I think that this is important because there's also an image that God is just kind of distant. From a distance, God is watching. <laughs> you know? it, and that's a very popular image of what God's like, that he's just there. In fact, I would submit that that is probably the most popular uh, image of what God is a part of from Christianity. That he's somewhere out there. I got to go to him. I have to find him. Uh, I have to do whatever it is to satisfy him. You know, not here. This is a God who is active in our lives. Um, and this is all something that deals with, you know, his love for us. You know, it, this is, it, there's no obligation. There's no, you know, you know, some of the, some of the mythologies of where people came from, you know, it, we were a byproduct of something else that a God was doing, you know, and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, and so now I'm kind of stuck with these people and I have to do something with them. They might be semi good for entertainment, you know? <laughs> That's not, that's not where the Father's coming from. It's this, this love that moves him to create. Now, I want you to go through and count in the meaning how many times does Luther use the word all as he explains this. 
Wow, like seven times? Close. Seven or eight, yeah. Del? I got six, but I'm not the best at this. There's nine. Mm. Do you think that Marty might be trying to drive a point here? <laughs> you know, because I think that he is. And he's really, um, he's really trying to drive that everything that exists, it, it exists out of God's love and out of his pleasure that he has in us. And, and so um, it's just really this, this comprehensive uh, relationship that we have with him and, and, uh, and in, in his provision for us too. So God creates all. Um, there's a great quote that I heard one time um, from, uh, I believe it was Carl Sagan, where he said, to create or to make an apple pie from scratch, first you must create the universe. You know, and, and there's an element of that in, you know, Sagan was not a, a Christian, uh, you know, in any imagination at all. Uh, but, uh, but there's an element of that in what we're talking about here. That even the minutiae of our lives are related to this sense that God makes all of it. And he sustains all of it. And he keeps all of it. Why? Because he loves us. And he loves his creation. And, and it isn't just that he loves people. He loves the whole of creation. The second article is the one that's about Jesus. Um, and uh, uh, the, the key words in, in this one really are that uh, it, it starts out, he explains who Jesus is. True God, begotten from the Father from eternity. Also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. You know, so there, there's this, um, this mystery that he is God and man, not in the way that, you know, Hercules was God and man. You know, we have all these stories of demigods out of the Greek mythology. You know, I mean, they were unique. They were special, uh, often really strong or, or really clever or something like that. Um, the message of the scripture is that Jesus is God, period. Jesus is human, period. <laughs> Wait a minute, those two things don't go together. You are correct. But that's what it says about him, that he is completely human, able to sympathize with us in every aspect of our lives, and that he is completely God. Wait a minute, you can't be completely and completely. You, know, you can't be 100% God and 100% human. That's 200%. Bummer. Because he seems to have done it, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, and that's you know that's what the, the scriptures, what Jesus says about himself. So, he is this unique person in, in all of history who has redeemed me, and that idea of redemption I think is hugely important. That we were lost, and he purchases us back. Um redeemed has become kind of similar to saved uh, in, in the way that we, we understand it. But I think that we need to recapture a little bit of that economic idea of what it means to redeem something. You know, you go to the store, you redeem your coupons. 
There's a monetary value there, right? Um, and it's not that we're worth a certain amount of money, but there is a value that God places on us. And God in Christ has redeemed us. He's, in a sense, purchased us. Even though we were lost and condemned, it goes on, who has redeemed me a lost and condemned person. Uh, that can also be translated a lost and condemned creature. Um, he has purchased and won me, continues with that economic type of idea, from all sin, from death, and from the power of the devil. Remember that Jesus says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. There are two ways that people get out of slavery in general. One is you know, that they run away, they revolt, or something along those lines. And the other is that somebody purchases them and sets them free. That's the image that's here. He is purchasing us to set us free from the slavery to sin, which leads to death in the power of the devil. Okay? He has purchased and won me from all sins, from death, from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. That's the value that Jesus places on you. That you are worth his blood, you are worth his suffering, you are worth his death. That's a pretty high value. Why would he do that? That I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity, this is most certainly true. Why would he do it? Because he, he, he wants us to live with him. To be able to joyfully live righteous lives and be innocent. be blessed, and in that innocence and blessedness to serve him. Not out of slavery, but out of gratitude. Um, I noticed that the yeah. he descended into hell is not there. In the explanation part? No, in the top. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, Third day he rose from the dead. Go up to... Oh, okay. Farther up. Yeah. Okay. So the descent into hell. Um, Yeah, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Even though I was wrong, it says... (laughs) No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Um, So there is a pattern that's going on here. Here, so I don't forget. Um, So basically, uh, as you go through the uh, the creed itself, um, yeah, I... And in Jesus Christ, the only Son of our Lord, who was conceived. I'm just going to scribble. And then he was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, buried. And then he descended into hell. Which way should I go? Because you know this is this is kind of a a progress of humiliation, right? Right. Jesus 
it says in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself. He, you know, he takes the form of a servant. You know, and he, he, it's like he's moving down, down, down. And, you know, and he's buried. And we place the descendant into hell right here. Because what happens is that uh, this descended into hell, which this is something that people are, are contentious about, whether this belongs in the creed or not. Okay, It goes to a passage in 1 Peter that says that Jesus went and he preached to the spirits in prison. We understand that to be, you know, after he's died, while he's buried, that this is what we would call, so that if this is humiliation... This is exaltation over here. He goes to hell to declare victory. Um, there are some pretty powerful pictures out of World War II from when the Nazis took Paris. And the first thing that they did was they had a big parade that went right through the Arch de Triomphe. And they're saying, we beat you. That's that moment in a much more holy way. He descended into hell. And then it just continues back up from there as you look at uh, you know, the, the rest of that uh, creed. Um, you know, third day he rose, he ascended, sits at the right hand of the Father, and from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. So there, there is kind of this movement to, to the creed. Uh, as we read through, you know, the way that it talks about who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, anything else on the second article of the creed before I move to the third? All right. So the third article of the creed, in some ways, I think that the third article of the creed is the most difficult because the Holy Spirit is the most mysterious to us. You know, we, I kind of understand the creator thing. You know, God is the, the father, the, the, the big guy in the sky. You know, which isn't really an accurate image, but, you know, we kind of wrap our minds around it. Um, Jesus. Boy, we got the Gospels. We can really connect there. The Holy Spirit's a little bit more difficult. Um, Jesus speaks about him. Uh, he appears in the Old Testament, talks about the Spirit of the Lord being upon us. You know, all of these things. Um, and, and so there's a little bit of a, of a mystery that, that gets involved with him here. Um, the creed itself says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So it's kind of like, wait a second, what does he do? You know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but I also believe in the church. You know, it talks about God being the, the creator of everything. It talks about Jesus being, you know, the, the, the two natures, and there's this humiliation and exaltation. And this is more like just a list. And I think it's partly because of this mystery that's involved. And I, what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit works in and through to create these things and to deliver these things to us. So Luther when he gets at this, he says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. 
And this is something that is really significant in terms of understanding how we come to faith. That it is about the work of God in our lives. The work of the Holy Spirit uh, in us. That we are in a state where we are, um, as it says in the scriptures, that we are spiritually blind. Um, throughout the Old Testament, people who sin are considered to be blind. And we, we just, it's like we go through the world, we don't even see what God has done. Um, I think of this sometimes when people say there is no God. I'm like, really? Have you looked at a tree? You know, have you looked at a, an ecosystem? I mean, all of these things are just... Have you looked at the way that the stars move through the sky and they keep coming back to their places over and over again? You know, complexity doesn't happen on accident. In, in my mind, it's like a willful blindness to not see that there is at least a creator. Okay? You know, and, and it's, it's this, you know, we're spiritually blind. We're dead. In Ephesians 2, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now you're made alive in Christ. You know, what do dead people do? Nothing. They lay there. They rot. You know, and, and do dead people get up and say, oh, please, you know, I, I, I give my heart to you. No. You know, because they're incapable of it. Um, in fact, in, in Romans 8, it, you know, it says this beautifully about being hostile to God, that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, nor can it. And so this image of God's salvation is so thorough. It is, you know, even the faith that we have that takes hold of God's promises is a gift that he gives us. So when, when Luther starts explaining this, he says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. This is that whole faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10. He's enlightened me with his gifts. You know, there are all these things that, as Jesus is, is telling the disciples, you know, they get to understand the parables. Outside, they don't understand the parables. Why? Because he's opened their minds to receive these messages. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in us. He opens us to be enlightened, in a sense. Um, he's sanctified. He, that means he's made us holy. Well, how has he made us, made, made us holy? By delivering Jesus' forgiveness to us. And he keeps us in the true faith. So that this is really an image of us living in relationship and, and independence. Not independence, but in dependence, where we depend on God all the time to keep us in the faith and, and to, to keep us alive in the faith. And this is an individual thing. You know, I believe that I cannot, but it goes on and says, in the same way, he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus in the one true faith. In other words, he's just constantly delivering what Jesus has done. And then he speaks a little bit about what's the purpose of the church. 
In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives all my sins and the sins of all believers. That the, the church then, properly understood as all believers in Christ, is the, the tool that God uses to bring forgiveness to people. And then on the last day, he's going to raise me up and all the dead and give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. It you know, ends with, with the resurrection there. And so the role of the church is really to testify about who Jesus is and then to become like a conduit that the Holy Spirit works through. Now, back to this Trinity thing. I love the, uh, I love the imagery that we use here with the Trinity. Um, and I want to talk about this to, you know, so that you can be aware of it, to understand it when you see it. Um, but I also want you to understand that we're dealing with a mystery in the sense that this is something that is just, God is other than us. There are parallels, things that we can grab onto to help us to understand a little bit. You know, a couple gets married, the two become one flesh, right? There's a unity that's there. But there's still the two people. You know, we speak about being body, soul, and spirit, you know, or body, mind, and spirit, okay. Um, it doesn't translate completely over. But here are some of the symbols that we've used. All the way in the, uh, all the, way in the background, you see a circle. Um, where does it begin? Where does it end? That's kind of the idea with the circle, right? It's eternal. God is eternal. Within that circle, there's a triangle here. Back to geometry, that's an equilateral triangle. Which means that the sides and the angles are all the same. The same, yes. And that so that speaks of, you know, there's not, you know, one that is more God than the other. They're all what well, the, the theological term that we would use is co equal. Okay? Um, so you see these little buds in the corner here um, those are often used as, as symbols of the uh, uh, of the Trinity you know it's kind of same size they, they, you know they come together in a triangular form um, you know and there are three of them uh, you also have these interlocking circles and any one of these sometimes you'll see on their own you know as symbols of God and, and of the Trinity uh, trying to express this reality um, but I've always been kind of uh, intrigued by this bit in here where the circles overlap, you know, and it's just kind of this, this pretty image. But they're all the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, what they've done here in, with this stained glass window is they've superimposed um, entire circles in a triangular form symbolizing each, each person of the Trinity in a way that uh, um, uh, tells us something about that person of the Trinity. At the top, this is a symbol of the Father. Now, you notice up at the top here, we've got these four letters, uh, Y-H-W-H. Um, last week I talked about God's name in the sermon, Yahweh. Hebrew does not have um, 
Bowels. Yeah. So, YHWH is Yahweh. That's, you know, the, the proper name of God. You know, and, and so when God meets Moses there at the burning bush, um, you know, that's the, that's the name he gives him. There's another name down here. This is one word, A-B-B-A, -B -B -A, Abba. It means dad. Doesn't mean, you know, I mean, by extension, obviously it means father, uh, you know, because a dad is a father. But it's not father in the proper sense. In fact, even better translated, it's daddy. It's a very intimate word. Um, so if you were to go um, to Israel today, um, if somebody calls their dad Ab, that's father. But if they call him Abba, that's daddy. Okay? You know, and, and little children to this day call their dads you know, Abba over there. The hand, this, um, this configuration of the hand um, is, is a hand that's held up in blessing. Why? I don't know. I don't know why that particular, be, you know, becomes, you know, you know a, a symbol for blessing. But this is the way that, you know, when I was a boy, you know, the pastor often, when he spoke the benediction, held his hand like that. Um, I find it uncomfortable. I just, you know. <laughs> hold my hand open, you know, it, it, it's just symbolism, you know, it's, it, it's not something that, you know, had to be done. What do you notice behind there, though? The crow. Yeah, and I, I find that interesting, um, there, can you see it here and here, uh, mm -hmm. as well, um, this, what is it? The cross. You see a cross in the background? Oh, I see. And the you see it here, yeah. and you see it here as mm -hmm. well. They're configured, this one's configured differently, and I'm going to come back to that. But the reason for that is, how do we know God? Through His Son. Yeah. So even when we're dealing with the Father or the Spirit, the only way that we really know them is through Jesus. Know Him rightly, anyhow. Okay? So, you know, we've got this, this imagery up here. Um, over here, this is the symbol for Jesus. Uh, these symbols come to us uh, largely out of the book of Revelation. Uh, although John the Baptist does refer to Jesus uh, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But when we read the book of Revelation, you know, it really hits on that image of Jesus as the Lamb uh, that was slain, but is alive again and is victorious. So you have this uh, banner that's in a, kind of a, you know, it's a military looking thing. You know, it, it, he, he's won the victory. Underneath, and this is symbolism from Revelation again, um, the book with the seven seals. Oh. Yeah, seven, just make sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, he is the one who is worthy to open those seals. Now, the, what that literally means is that the book that's sealed with the seven seals, it, it, it's, the, it's the future. And Jesus is the one who is worthy to un open the, the, the future of, of God's plan and his plan of salvation for us. That, that's what that book is all about. Now, up here, we, we've got some more symbols. Um, and these ones go to the Greek. Remember that I said that, that everything that was copied years ago was copied by hand. Copying was very expensive 
paper was not mass produced and therefore not cheap. In fact, a lot of times they would print on vellum. And you know what vellum is? Skin. It's animal skin. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's like a really, really thin leather. Well, that's even more expensive, <laughs> right? And, and so they would use shorthand. So this is the first and the last letter of Jesus in Greek. These are letters for Christ. This was the shorthand that they would use. So when you see that, you know, that's Jesus, that's Christ in shorthand. And, you know, early biblical church copying stuff. Now, here we have the Holy Spirit. Um, why a dove? Peace. Good guess. When Jesus was baptized, the dove came up. The Spirit the came down in the form of a dove. Yeah. Now, you see this, this, these rays that are coming down, and within those rays you see flames. That's a reference to Pentecost. Tongues of fire. The tongues of fire that appeared over the apostles. How many of them are there? Seven. Seven, yeah. And this goes back to uh, Revelation again, the seven churches, which, you know, there were seven churches that the letter was written to. You know, that's you know, why there are seven. They're writing to seven particular churches. Um, it's not that there only are seven churches. Um, but they become some, in a sense, representative of uh, all of Christianity, you know, in their, in their faithfulness, but also in their sin. You know, and they become an example to all of us. And so, but at the same time, you know, the light of the Spirit is shining through them. Now, notice that this cross goes up, that cross goes up, and this one comes down. down. Because it's the Spirit's work to deliver what Jesus has done to us. He's the one who comes to us to deliver Jesus to us, who brings us to his Father. Art is trying to teach us here. You know, and you can make a lot of that or you can make a little of it. I, I, you know, either way is fine. Um, but I think it's, it's helpful to see the, the symbolism. And then you've got the, the holy, holy, holy. Um, that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees a vision of God in the temple, sees God in the temple, you know, and the angels are there and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. You know, and it's just this moment of, of worship and really in a lot of ways that's our response to you know the, the God who comes to us who redeems us who who's created us is you know to worship him and that's all I got for you today unless this you have questions came apart, about by I mean this depiction yeah from where these are well as I said you know the the image of a lamb that comes to us from Revelation. That's Scripture, right? You know, and, and the I understand the individual things, but all this was put together by one person, or by no? This was this was as the as God's another, people have. You know, how do I understand who God is from what He's told us? Okay. You know, and, and so, like I said, that word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. Triune does not appear in the Bible. 
but the message is there. And so we created this word to describe what we're seeing. Well, this is an artist's attempt to describe what we're reading in the scripture. And in some ways, I actually think this is more helpful than the word. You know, because it, it allows us to kind of see the action that, that, that goes into understanding, you know, who God is. Now, having said that, we usually think of creation with the Father, right? Does that mean that the other two weren't involved? No. Not at all. In fact, when you read Colossians, it talks about Jesus being the creator. First John. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, if you read Genesis 1, you know, God creates the heavens and the earth. The spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. You know, you got that dove type of an image there. And God speaks word. the word. You know, and, and so anything and everything that whenever we're dealing with God, we're dealing with God in his entirety. But these different persons, it's like there's a specialization there, but that doesn't mean that the other two ain't involved. You know, God is one. So, probably not the most satisfying in terms of, the, oh, now I understand it all. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully it faithfully says what the scriptures say so that we can kind of look and say, all right, well, this is who God is and what he does. Any questions before we wrap up? Because I'm at time. I want to respect your time. I mean, Zach's already got Jack and he's halfway up. <laughs> My wife worked last night, so baby's sleeping. Fair enough, yes. <laughs> All right. So next time we get together next week, uh, I will start out the same way. You know, any questions? And, uh, it, it, you know, and we'll, we'll dig into, you know, the, the stuff that you've, uh, you've read and you've come across, you know, in, in the week intervening. If you have questions, you yeah. know, through the week, shoot me an sure. email Absolutely. or whatever. Yeah. You know, glad to try to answer those. Absolutely. It's nice that I can still continue on, you know, listening. Yeah. Because I like just putting my earbuds in and that's great. I'm yeah. It, yeah. Um, so, uh, and this will be up later if you want a link to it to listen to it again. I, I can send that to you, um, but, uh, you know, or if you have insomnia, you know, whatever, um, but, uh, um, and I'll, I'll send the link to Bob so that he can follow along. Um, let's pray. Father in heaven, I, I thank you for the opportunity to be here to chew on some of these difficult topics to try to understand who you are, what you've said about yourself. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue to listen to your word in the gospel of Luke, and as we chew on these Bible passages and the catechism and think about all of these things, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be upon us to enlighten us, to lead us and to guide us, uh, and to strengthen the faith that you have given us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, God.